0: Thursday, March 9th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Barbara Lee has announced her intention to run for the Senate in California. The New York Times coverage of this, well, not the total event, but an angle of this announcement is that progress stalled for black women trying to achieve higher office. And the stats, some of the stats are fairly stark. There are zero black women senators. Since black women are almost 7% of the population, it should be seven, but of course it won't be seven, given the fact that many states would never elect any Democrat, and 90 something percent of all black women are Democrats, and also given the fact that people in America still vote largely, though not entirely on ethnic lines. Sure, there are some progressive circles in which being a person of color or from an underrepresented group might actually help you in the hiring or voting process, but the circumference of those circles are not so wide as to include any U.S. state. Running against Barbara Lee are the two biggest reasons why I predict she won't be the next black woman senator, and those reasons are Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. They're both well-known, They're both going to be probably better funded than Lee. They're both highly qualified. They're both excellent on TV. Lee is certainly among those things and some of those things, but she doesn't have those things as much as these two superstar members of the House of Representatives. We should also note that here are the demographics for California. 39% of Californians are Latino, 35% are white, 15% are Asian, and 5% are black, so, again, it doesn't mean that white people won't vote for any black person, but if you're taking ethnicity into account as an explanation as to why it might be hard to elect this next black woman to the Senate, that is certainly a consideration. So, as I said, black women make up 7%, around 7% of the population, maybe a tad bit less. In the House of Representatives, there are 25 black women. That means they make up 5.7% of the House of Representatives. This indicates to me, it's a strong indication that the biggest reason that black women aren't elected to the Senate is really the rules of the Senate as opposed to a desire on the part of the population at large to elect or not elect black women. The New York Times has a phrase to try to emphasize how much progress has stalled. The numbers are stark. Only two black women have served in the Senate in its 233-year history. Well, that's true, but you might as well say only two black women have served in the Senate since the dawn of time, considering for the first 130 years of that 233-year history, no woman of any ethnicity served in the Senate. And you also should note that no black men were elected to the Senate before 1967, When Edward Brooke of Massachusetts was voted in on a positive note and rebutting the idea that progress stalls for black women, trying to achieve higher office, 11% of the Supreme Court is black women, i.e. one 50% of the executive branch elected positions are occupied by black women, i.e. Kamala Harris. 4% of lieutenant governors are black women, but also Joe Biden has nominated 11 black women for the Court of Appeals out of 31 total judges that he's nominated. He is setting records for nominating and seating on the Court of Appeals and all the district courts black women. So progress is being made. It is not being made all the time and at every level. There are certainly prejudices at play preventing black women from rising to higher office. But these prejudices are often baked into not so much antipathy towards the idea or the specifics of a black woman, just an embrace of other people who benefit, of course, from their status as perhaps male, perhaps white, perhaps rich, white and male. The rich part, always trumping all other considerations when it comes to getting elected to the Senate. On the show today, I will spiel about another federal issue, this of the debt. It's big, and it's concerning. Controversially so. But first, History of the World, Part 2, is out now on Hulu, and it stars so many people, it's easier to list those who it doesn't star. But if you tune into the series or whatever we do on streamers, do we tune, do we stream? If you stream your way in, you will find Ike Barinholtz and Nick Kroll and Taika Waititi and Wanda Sykes and a cast and cavalcade of thousands. Dave Stassen is an executive producer of this cavalcade of nonsense and history and whimsy up next. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130, that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. History of the World Part 1 is a hysterical, seminal, Mel Brooks film. Even the title's funny. Part 1, we couldn't fit it all in. But would there ever be a Part 2? That was part of the joke. They teased Hitler on ice. They teased Jews in space. They actually wound up using the same song as Men in Tights. That's how much of a Mel Brooks fan I am. I guess the big question with ever mounting a part two is, has Hollywood run out of funny Jewish people? It turns out it has not, because now an eight-part sequel of sorts on Hulu to History of the World Part One. It's History of the World Part Two. It stars, at this point, it would be easier to list all the people it doesn't star, but Nick Kroll, Ike Baronholtz, Jack Black, Wanda Sykes, Tycho Watiti, Camille Nubjani, Sarah Silverman, the entire cast of Al- Abbott Elementary, I think. Blake Griffin's in there. I don't want to give too many away. It's like at this point, people will assume that you were in the show just to be safe, like Jethro Tall playing Woodstock. One of the executive producers of this series, Dave Stassen, draw- joins me now. David, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. Wow, I did not know that Robin Hood... Uh,
1: Crossover song thing.
0: Remember the original song from Jews in Space. We're Jews out in space. We're zooming along, protecting the Hebrew race. We're men. We're men in space. We roam around the forest looking for lights. Same Melody, you got to ask Mel about that. Mel's in the new show. He shows up. He's super buff. How'd you How'd you land him? Yeah. Well, you know, he did. He did
1: um, a lot of steroids. Uh, he was going to Germany for you know blood
0: spinning treatments. It was important to him that his body looked right. Yeah, I, I hear the uh, Yankees signed him to an extended ten year deal. But was that? Did he own the intellectual rights? I mean, it's great to have him, but to do this, did you need the Mel Brooks sign off? And second part of that question was then a consideration. Let's just wait till he dies.
1: <laughs> no, it was Mel is Mel is immortal. Mel's not going anywhere. <laughs> he, he's already he already wants the season two. He wants to know when we're going to get the pickup. He's hungry for more. <laughs> that's, that's why he's so successful. I think. Um, yeah, you needed the Mel. Mel does own some part. Some look. I did really bad in the LSAT in college. I don't know the legal, the legal part of it, but he uh, does own some piece of the show. You, we could not do it without him, which is why Nick Kroll, executive producer that he is, just nudged Mel for many years until Mel finally said, you know what, you're so annoying, just so you stop asking, we're gonna do it. Yeah, that's
0: how it works. That's called being a, a nudge, which is you know part of part of Kroll and Brooks's people and half of my people as well. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your comedy background, and were you a huge fan of the original film? Huge fan. Um, Mel
1: Brooks was one of my first babysitters. I, I like to say when, when my parents were having a dinner party or going out, my brother and I, would we ran a couple of movies. It was usually History of the World and or Blazing Saddles and or Young Frankenstein. Those were the movies I grew up on in VHS. And uh, I, one of the first, I, I still remember after a Little League Baseball game, seeing Spaceballs in the theater with my friends. Like, so yeah, Mel was, Mel and Airplane, like in the Airplane took so much from Mel's like slapstick, double entendre comedy, you know, uh, world that yeah it was a huge he was a huge influence on my life so
0: to work with him
1: every time i say to work with him i get chills because it's just, it's still surreal
0: so the original movie was you know we all remember mel brooks and and harvey Corman, gregory hines i hear in his first movie but there was also a cavalcade of pretty much vaudeville greats, people who would show up, guys, if you watch TV in the seventies, guys and women who, some of them had their own shows, you know, B. Arthur was in it, but just the face that you knew, the character actor that you knew, and there was maybe they were given one line and they would always nail it. It was this cavalcade of vaudevillians. And was that the kind of vibe that you were trying for with the new series? Yeah,
1: hundred percent. We wanted to um, honor honor Mel and we wanted to pay tribute to what we, we called it, the MBU, the Mel Brooks universe. And so we, yeah, the idea was we're going to have our tent poles. We're going to build the show like the movie. There's going to be a couple like stories that are longer, right? Civil War, Russian Revolution are going to be our uh, ancient Greece or um, Inquisition or French Revolution. Then we're going to, in the middle, throw in our funny 15 Commandments becomes 10 Commandments, our our one-off sketches. And we're going to be able to get Seth Rogen for six hours. We're going to get Kumail for six hours. We're going to get – and people really – there were so many yeses just because it was Mel Brooks. People just knew like they understood – everyone knows the movie. Everyone over a certain age, I should say. All of our our comedy friends over the age of, you know, 35-ish, they knew the movie, they understood the game, and it was really fun to play in that space of doing a kind of a comedy style that's gone away uh, in the last 20 years as we got more into the grounded, you know, human relationship comedies. And This is more just anything goes, put jokes everywhere, put jokes on signs, put jokes on clothes, put, you know, put jokes in names, just all all the stuff that Mel Kind of taught us
0: how to do. I think what's happened is that you're right. That has gone out of style for humans uh, on screen, but it's still alive in places like Rick and Morty, certainly family guy, the Simpsons jokes on a lot of levels that Zucker brothers or Mel Brooks type humor where, you know, I, I think it probably delights the writer's room as much as it delights the audience.
1: Yeah, know it was fun because, yeah, working on regular TV shows, like you you pitch stuff that gets a laugh in the room, but ultimately you know, well, that's only a joke you could do on The Simpsons, right? But this was really freeing, especially after uh, the last seven or eight years of very heightened American political tensions, just to get in a writer's room and just everyone just be pitching funny jokes. And the show, you can take whatever you want, but we were not like – This is going to be a show that really says something about, you know, politics or, you know, how you feel about this. And it's going to be a metaphor. We're just, everyone just got to pitch, read about history and then pitch like the funniest versions of these historical characters and do takedowns of things that maybe we've all learned about, you know, in our, you know, from our education and just do a ridiculous version of like grumpy Abe Lincoln, Abe Lincoln with with zero um, stature or, or, you know, or pathos just like. An annoyed Abe Lincoln, like just the Abe Lincoln we never seen, stuff like that.
0: What is a history of the world part two sketch? It's not just history plus funny. There has to be, you know, in the room. I'm sure you were like, "Well, I- I'm not saying that's not funny, but here's why it doesn't fit in." So, what what's the DNA of the kind of sketch that qualifies uh, for the show that we saw that works well?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right because usually it wasn't just okay. That's that's a historical moment, and then that's funny. The, we always try to think about like one more, one more twist on it, one more, one more layer that made it sort of feel like there's more than two pages here. Maybe there's you know because it's a sketch. Maybe there's six pages, and then then in editing you can trim that down to like the tightest, funniest two to three minutes. But if you just have an idea that's like one or two pages worth of jokes, you probably are going to end up having a pretty one note sketch. Like the Kama Sutra is is an idea, like we talked about a Kama Sutra book pitch. Like what happened when the guy who wrote the Kama Sutra like pitched the book? And then somebody said like, well, what if it was the Kama Sutra? And then there was like sec, it was soup recipes combined with sexual positions. And that
0: is what made it take off. My new book idea, the Kama Sutra from soup to nuts. If I'm not going slurp, 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 I'm eating soup. I'm sure
1: some people, it's not for everybody, but for us, it took, took it to a level where we felt like
0: it was something different. It was, that was my favorite, that was my favorite sketch of episode one, Camille Noomjani. And he, he commits to it. And of course the funniest thing is he's not like the sex is fine. Like he's really about the soup. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why is this different? Kumail,
1: Kumail, obviously being the funny guy that he is, found, found a way to be passionate about you know, it would it would be gross and not as funny if his, like, character was probably really into the perverted sex positions. Yeah. But the fact that he cares about giving people wholesome, nutritious soups is what gives his character some, you know, I don't know, some, some principles.
0: So you have this uh, varied cast, so many people, I'm sure, not only was working with Mel Brooks a key inducement, but... Nick Kroll has a Rolodex and Ike has a Rolodex and people want to work with them. But was it a cascade that once you got, I don't know, once you got half the cast of Apple Elementary and Sarah Silverman and Camille Johnny, it was that much easier to get the next batch of people? Casting kind of happened
1: sort of concurrently. So it, it was... Sarah, we actually got at the very end. She had wanted to do it at the, from the very beginning, but she, I think she was she was in New York doing a play, and we happened to do some reshoots in, uh, while we were editing, and she was available, so we got her for for the, for the one of the last days we shot. Um, I'm hoping if we get a season two, to your point, it will then be easier to to go get a few more, you know, whatever Chris Hemsworth or uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, will Ferrell always pops in the head when I think of funny people. But yeah, maybe it will be easier season two to get some funny people. But because it was such a big show, casting was such a laborious process. Not that people were saying no, but there were 300 parts to cast.
0: Yeah, you had a lot of moving parts and it was just scheduling that and working with the people who want to do it, but they don't have all the days it must have been really hard. Yeah,
1: I mean, Aaron Owens, our line producer, and Sally Sue Landers, our first AD, were just incredible at, like, making every possible schedule work. The hardest part of the show was rewriting sketches. I did some directing, shooting the sketches. But at the same time, the whole time, you're, like, fielding casting emails and casting calls all the time. You know, he's available, but only next week. And he's available, but he's got to be out to be at his Hulu show on Wednesday at 4 o'clock. And can we do his sketch? By Wednesday, you know, it was, that was, that was the real, real uh, Jenga of, of, of the show.
0: Were there any pieces of history that you wanted to crack, but it didn't quite work out? So, you know, either things that are left there for a season two or sketches that didn't quite get there or had to be sacrificed for another idea.
1: Well, we have a whole other tentpole that we wrote that we loved, but due to time constraints, and, and the size of the show, we just realized, well, there's eight episodes. We're going to do four temples that probably each take up about half of two episodes. So the math was just right that we did four. And so we have one about, uh, it's about a, a Cuban cigar farmer and Fidel Castro and JFK and Marilyn Monroe. And it's a whole like very funny 60s, you know, uh, botched assassination uh, story. And if we get, I mean, that one is
0: in, in the in the can ready to go. Not shot. I shouldn't say in the can. It's in, it's in the computer ready to go. What about fealty to history? I mean, obviously that's part of the humor, but was there any rule of thumbs about what license you can't, you could take and how accurate you wanted to be? That's a good question. I think it was
1: always, can we make it funny? Has enough time passed where the tragedy is now like sort of, uh, the, the scars has healed over. And, um, and then I think at the time we were in the writer's room, we started talking about, or it came up in, in Twitter and social media, but like this idea that Mel always punched up in his comedy. And so, you know, we wanted to punch up, punch up at, you know, the bishops who changed the Bible or, or, um, at, you know, a leader like, I don't know, uh, Kublai Khan, who was, you know, probably a tyrant to his wives, but we wanted to make sure we were,
0: you know, uh, making fun of those in power, as, as, as we think about Mel always did. Dave Stassen is an executive producer, along with uh, Wanda Sykes and Ike Barinholtz and and Nick Kroll, and a cast of thousands of History of the World, Part Two, streaming now on Hulu. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. And now the spiel. President Biden announced a budget today that, if passed, would decrease the national debt currently at $31 trillion by $3 trillion over the next decade. That's a good thing, the reduction part, not the $31 trillion part. And it seems like a weird thing to have to say that it's a good thing, reducing all this debt... But when I argue for bringing down the debt and deficit, I get pushback. Maybe it's because we societally were overly concerned with the national debt for a while. All right, I'll give you that. Maybe it's because some in the listening audience hearken to the words of former Bernie Sanders economics advisor, master of MMT, doyen of deficit dismissal, Stephanie Kelton.
1: Finding the votes to pass a spending bill can be hard, but finding the money is never a problem.
0: They just create it. Kelton says it like it's a good thing, it's not a good thing. I can prove it, pretty easily? All right. We spend $400 billion a year just to service the debt. $400 billion that we could spend elsewhere. If we wanted to, we could have clean drinking water for Jackson, Mississippi, and still have $399 billion left to spare. Or, I don't know, I'll give you a grab bag appealing to the left and right. We could double the pay of every teacher from Mississippi, West Virginia, Florida, and Louisiana, buy three new aircraft carriers, make the child tax credit permanent, that's the one that cut child poverty in half, and still have a $100 left over for that amount of money. A healthy economy like ours should have some amount of debt, even a lot of debt, I would say. I'd certainly right now sign up for $15 trillion in debt. That'd be great. But even cutting our national debt by a third would bring it under 100% of the GDP, which would be good. Now, Being under the debt-to-GDP ratio being under 100, it's not a magic number, it's not a threshold where if you cross it, as we have, everything falls apart. But operating at those levels for a long time becomes unmanageable, it gives us less wiggle room, it makes us pay more in debt servicing, and especially when inflation is high, it costs more to service the debt. Let's say America had $20 trillion in debt, that'd be okay with me. But that I have to say this at all, that I have to talk some portion, actually the most vocal portion of the audience, but not just the audience, I think it's mostly a vocal portion of the Democratic Party, that I have to talk them into thinking that debt and deficits at this level are bad is weird and it's kind of new. Time was, the sage grouses of the economy, who were mostly stentorian bearded white men, would opine about the downside of debt and deficit. We all took that as true, more than true, as gospel. But it really wasn't as true as we were led to believe. So now, of course, we jump to, therefore, it wasn't true at all. We get to choose our own adventure about which story about the debt to grab onto. There's the MMT stories voiced by Stephanie Kelton, or if you prefer the bearded credentialed white man, Robert Reich. Now is not the time to worry about the national debt. The time to start worrying about the debt, according to Reich, is never, never has never worked for you. He was especially emphasizing in 2020, with the pandemic, now's not the time. But I just read a Guardian article he wrote a month ago. He's still saying now's not the time. But by the same token, if you put a tax cut, any tax cut, in front of a Republican, they'll say pretty much the same thing. We do not need to worry about the debt. Here's Ted Cruz talking about tax cuts. We should be cutting everyone's taxes even if your local politicians are jacking them up on you you know what reagan did what jack kemp did was across the board cuts for everybody that is incredibly good for the economy and it produces economic growth actually i misled you a little bit it's not that ted cruz won't say don't worry about the debt, he will just never mention the debt. No Republican will ever mention the debt when a tax cut is in the offing. I would bet that most Republican voters who will tell you that running deficits and high national debt is a serious issue would also be honestly surprised to know that tax rates are the key determinant of the deficit and the national debt. Democrats also almost never mention the debt as a reason to oppose tax breaks. They always mention that it's the rich who will benefit disproportionately. Take this very apt Barack Obama riff about Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson's support for the Trump tax cut. And after he voted for a tax plan that allows people to write off the cost of private planes. I, I've been trying to get this thing closed since I was president. If you, if you can afford a private plane, you don't then you you don't need a tax break. But no, he he fought for this. And then his adult children bought not one, not two, but three private planes because apparently carpooling was not an option. Now here's the thing, Obama is a fantastic rhetorician. He's saying generally true things there, and there's no reason, logically, if you're trying to influence a voter, there's no reason to substitute a less rousing argument, which is, hey, there's a collective good of a lower deficit for a very tasty and accurate raw meat argument, but the sum effect is that taxes are always debated and I think always thought of as a question of fairness, who benefits, do the rich benefit, do the poor need tax breaks, rather than a question of trade-offs. If we lower the taxes, we have more debt. And that's a bad thing because we have a lot of debt. Debt is always seen as a function of spending. If I were advising, though not Barack Obama when he's on the campaign trail, but in general, if I was advising, I'd say inject more debt talk into all the tax talk. It is hard for the left to take any tax tact other than blaming the right Because indeed, the right has been very dishonest on the issue. Oh, yes, they have. The New York Times did a story the other day chronicling Republican hypocrisy on debt and deficits. They nailed it. These Republicans spend what they want to spend, and when they don't want to spend is the only time they cry debt. Not every Republican. Some are more consistent than others. Not for every spending bill. But that's how the party has generally voted over the post-Great Recession period of massive debt incursion. But if the Republicans are hypocrites, the left is full of idiots. All right, it's probably too strong. Kelton Reich, Professor James Galbraith, they're not actually stupid. They're just wrong. And they have convinced too many on the left of the logical fallacy or magical thinking of never have to worry about the debt, of telling ourselves, we print the world's reserve currency, therefore we have the keys to a magic box. I don't know, maybe it's, okay, so idiocy, just kind of similar in phrasing to hypocrisy, that's why I chose it. Maybe it's more like ignorance, although I don't think Kelton and Galbraith and Reich are. Maybe it's like a well-intentioned miscalculation. You got to have priorities, and their priorities aren't the debt, their priorities are the poor, that has to override everything. I guess that's what you call something like a moral orientation. And when put or thought about this way, it doesn't seem as cruel and immoral as hypocrisy, but... It is the wrong way of thinking. If you ever meet a person on the left who say deficits and debt don't matter in the US, they are wrong. They were as wrong as when Dick Cheney said that. There's a permissible way to say that, which is something like, of course debt and deficits matter. I just think we need to prioritize spending on whatever, despite knowing full well that there will be consequential trade-offs of incurring debt. But no one ever says that. No one ever, I don't think anyone in national politics ever even thinks that. Not enough people, at least. And of course, a politician's time horizon is less than the time horizon of when the debt really comes to bite us. Plus, talking of Republican hypocrisy is true. And it's attractive, in fact, it's so attractive for the Republican caucus that I have no idea if they fundamentally realize that this level of national debt has a lot of negative consequences now and in the future. What really matters is that the Republicans are hypocrites about it. There are Democrats, Joe Biden seems to be one, Joe Manchin is another, who will tout the value of lowering deficits, but do they actually lower the deficit lower the debt. The Biden budget is dead on arrival. That's why I didn't spend too much time discussing the relative merits of it versus this more broad idea of deficit reduction. The Joe Manchin named and supported Inflation Reduction Act, however, does lower deficits by about a quarter of a trillion dollars over a decade, according to the CBO. But is Joe Manchin a popular politician on the left? Is this particular portion of Joe Biden's agenda something that the left supports or even talks about? So this is why I think that deficit and debt reduction is characterized by hypocrisy on the right and a kind of idiocy on the left. It is just not a popular issue. And there seems to be no path to achieve a bipartisan consensus convinced that this is something to act upon. I bet 60 senators know that it's something to act upon. I bet 250 members of the House actually, well, I don't know if I bet that. I hope that 250 members of the House actually know that this high level of debt is bad and we should do something about it. It's just not the sort of consensus where many of these will dare say any of this out loud without facing blowback and incurring political costs. It's the one area where incurring costs is frowned upon. It's not a great place to be, we have deficits of understanding, but of course also the real actual deficit, which adds up to a not inconsequential $31 trillion in debt, which we have to admit is, as surprisingly disputed as the next statement is, it's not a good thing. And that's it for today's show. I go into a deficit of appreciation for my producer, Corey Wara, and my senior producer, Joel Patterson, to say nothing of, much like the MMT acolytes will say nothing of the demerits of debt, to say nothing of the value of Peachfish COO Michelle Pesca. Isn't that, it's such a loving statement, how I tie credit that I give to my wife to a little bit of jibe at MMT. Yeah, that is that is the depth of my passion. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, peru, peru. And thanks for listening. Now, <laughs> I mean, I, you need three?